Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Tennis Worthy Podcast brought to you by the International Tennis Hall of Fame. I'm Brett Haber, and I hope you've enjoyed the first two podcasts in this second season, the interviews with Jim Courier and Ken Rosewall. If you missed them, you can go to tennisfame.com slash podcast or search for Tennis Worthy Podcast on your preferred podcast provider. Today's subject is Patrick Rafter, the two-time U.S. Open champion and world number one who was probably the last all-out serve and volleyer to win a major title. When it comes to talent, some people are just more talented than others. But if you look at the top players, they play the big pressure points really well. I can tell you that when I played Pete in the finals of Wimbledon and I had him and I choked, that feeling is not a great feeling. Someone says to me in the press conference, I just beat Andre in the fourth round. And they said, Agassi said, you can't win this. I said, well, there's eight guys left. I'm one of eight. I always say, if you're going to have a go, go at it hard and let's see how good you can be and be the best you can be. Leave nothing behind. If you're old enough to remember Rafter playing, you probably have some vague recollection of him being a rather decent human being, a fair dinkum bloke, as the Aussies would say. Well, nothing you'll hear in the next half hour will tarnish that image. In fact, it may well enhance it because Pat is wonderfully honest about his time as a junior, the way he choked his words in his first Wimbledon final, and his adjustment to retirement. I sat down with him when he came back to Newport, Rhode Island, 17 years after his induction into the International Tennis Hall of Fame. But we started with the remarkable family in Queensland, Australia, in which he grew up. One of the things we do on the Tennis Worthy podcast is trace the origins of a champion's mentality and uh, how you were able to navigate yourself to elite status in this cutthroat sport that professional tennis is. And it occurs to me that you first had to navigate yourself to elite status in your family where you were one of 10 children. Uh, did the origins of your competitiveness start, you know, at, at the uh, at the icebox, you know, uh, getting in line for food? I mean, that's a lot of folks. It is, but it's a, it'd be a subconscious thing. It was certainly not, I need to get to the front of the line. It was funny, you know, when mum would make dinner, she, she might make a spaghetti bolognese, so it'd be this big. And it went from the oldest to the youngest, so here's a bowl, and there you go, take it, and then you got down, you wait, and you got your food, and by the time you got your food, probably the oldest is when he finished his food. There was no, like, waiting, sitting around and going, all right, bloody hell, when's, when's everyone coming It wasn't a group out? experience, oh, necessarily. No. Oh, no, no, eat when the food comes, you know, because otherwise trying to control, you know, nine hungry mouths and then and, and, and mum and dad, and then, you know, just, everything's got to be cold by then, and hmm. people are off playing sports and all different things in different areas. Um, so yeah, maybe maybe that competitiveness started then. It's, it's really really hard to say. Uh, why didn't one of my other brothers, you know, do it or sisters do it? Um, however, it did fall uh, to me, I guess, and it was a natural progression. It was there's nothing forced in my career. There was no one telling me I had to do this or do that. I remember one stage when I was about 14. I said to my mum, "I'm not sure I want to play. I want to maybe." enjoy the weekends with my friends, because every weekend's a tennis tournament, traveling around. And mum and dad said, yeah, no worries, don't worry about it. And after four weeks, I went, you know what, I actually <laughs> kind of like this sport, this is fun. Um, had the ups and downs and the roller coasters, I wasn't a great junior, I was losing lots of matches, didn't make any teams. Stuck with it for whatever reason, I cannot tell you the reason why. I served and volleyed, I was still a boy playing a man's game. 
and my mum would sometimes say, you know, why don't you learn to stay back and play? And I said, because no, it's no fun. I want to be at the net having fun. And I think that's the reason why I probably came on a little bit later on in life as well, because I was still a boy, I wasn't a man. You saw Becker at 17, he was mm -hmm. a big, strong man. That's right. 17, I was still a boy, and I was trying to play a Becker style of game, and I just wasn't very good. And not only was I wasn't very good, I just wasn't very big and strong either. So it took me a while to grow in uh, to my body, I suppose. Is it, isn't it true that serve and volley tennis often takes a little longer to develop because there's there's built-in, and I use this term advisedly, but failure, you're going to get past a lot at the beginning. Your technique is not going to be ideal, and that it, it requires a certain stick to to withstand the, oh, my God, these guys are whistling passing shots past me. Is that a mindset that you were aware of at the beginning of your tennis? Not at all. Not one bit. I huh. didn't realize it was... You know, it was, uh, th that wasn't it. it was Be Becker, I mean, Beckett won at 17. Yeah. And he was playing a serve volley game. Um, yes, as I said before, he was big and strong. But no, there was no, I, I never heard that expression to say that the, the, the game takes a little while to develop. I mean, Pete Sampras, he was 19 when he won the US Open. That's true. Um, a little bit of a different style of serve and volley than what I was. Mm -hmm. I've sort of, Model my game on your Ed Berg style of play, kick, serve, get to the net, make your first volley, go from there, where Becker was really big and powerful, and Pat Cash probably played a bit similar to ours as well. So when you say that, it probably makes sense that a serve and volley game takes a little bit longer to develop, but at the same time, I, I don't know. It was more of a tracking process back then. It was, how old are you? Where should you be at this age? Mm. And I wasn't really on any trajectory to be a, known as a player. At the same time, you, you also just said that your development was very organic. Your parents didn't force you any, mm. into anything. You were not pushed. And, and it reminds me of something that Bob and Mike Bryan told me about the way Wayne treated their development, that they would hang around his practices when he was a younger man playing tennis. At the end of practice, he would let them play for five minutes, and then he pulled them off the court because he wanted to see if they truly wanted it or if he, they were doing it because they thought he wanted him to do it. And it became organic, and they loved it, and they wanted more. Is that an accurate takeaway of the way you feel you were? It had to come from you, and, and is that also the way you approached sport with your children? Mm. Um, I, I can't, you know what? It, it was never that hard to get up at 6 a.m. to start training. It wasn't? No, no sometimes I'd get up at 5.30. At what age? Uh, 15, 14, 15. You're telling me as a 15-year-old? I don't think most 15-year-olds no. view things that way. My mum, I remember... Because obviously such a large family was spread out a little bit and Dad was working here. But Mum would... Uh, there was one stage where I went through, I'd uh, have a lesson before I'd start training. So I'd get up at 5.30, get to the course by 6, uh, quarter to 6 to train in the dark, for, you know, from yeah. 6 to just before 7 and then get in the car and run back to the other training session from 7 to 8 and jump on the bus, go to school, come back 3.30 to start training again from 3.30 to 4.30 or 5 o'clock. And it all was like, yeah, that's what you do. It was not that hard. For me to go out and get a bucket of balls and serve half an hour serving when I'm 15 and 16, 17, before anyone else got to the court was not that big a deal. At what point did, it, did you recognise that your skill set was a little different? Mm. When did it occur to you that m this might be a thing that I can do at a high level? Well, I guess a high level to me was always making it, and making it had to be at least top 50. That, for some reason, that was a number that stuck in my mind. And 
it was 92, um, 1992, I've been sitting at 300 in the world for a couple of years and I was travelling through Asia with my mum on about a six or seven week stint and I said to her, I don't think I'm going to make it, this will be, you know, I feel like I've let you all down and I don't know if I'm, I'm good enough, maybe I should just go and get a job and become a tennis coach or something like that. And mum just said, you don't know us anything, you know, this is, I've really enjoyed the, your time and if this is where it ends, this is where it ends. And I said, oh, I'll, I'll give it one more year. And then and that's what I did. And then... 93 happened. 93 happened, exactly. Wimbledon uh, and then the summer. Did you not beat Sampras in I Indianapolis did. that year? That's right. Um, I was lucky as the last man into the draw. Uh, and then, yeah, so Quali, third round, played Andre, at Santa, uh, third round of Wimbledon, got to play Andre on Santa Court. So exciting. Hmm. And then... What do, what do you remember about that day? Oh, I was just such a young rookie. I won the second set. I was set all. And I've asked Andre about it too. And I've jumped up and down like an absolute idiot, like I've won the tournament. <laughs> and Andre, I think, looked across at me and went, oh, no, he's poor little kid. And 6-love, six 6-2. Six so, like, I think I lost the next 10 games. <laughs> That'll learn you. Yeah, you know, but they're, they're steps, you know. It was my development and mentally and being on the court with these guys I felt like it didn't belong you know and it just took a little bit and a little bit and a little bit of confidence and belief in yourself and your development you train a bit harder you're developing more as a man it all comes together what was the day you thought I do belong um actually it was about I remember I was in 94 and I was in I made the finals of a tournament in Hong Kong I had to play Michael Chang I was having some good wins that week and I said you know what I belong hmm. I was already about 25 in the world then, but I, I felt then that it was like, now, now, now I belong. If you were 25 in the world, you might have been the last person to accept that you belong because the whole rest of the world had seen by that time that you belong. Yeah, I think, um, but really belong, you know, like okay. uh, I feel like... There's belong and then there's belong. Yeah, you just didn't know where I was going to sit. But then I sit back out to 70 in the world in 96, 97, you know, making that transition back again, but... I always, I believed then that if I did the right work and the hard work, I'd, I could be a player. I felt like I was good enough now to compete with them. I had some decent wins. I'd beaten Pete, I'd beaten Chang. Um, I was starting to play some okay tennis uh, consistently enough. I think I'd beaten Courier as well. And then I thought, yeah, maybe I can um, hang with these fellas. And then the downs came, you know, people worked my game out. I still wasn't good enough at what I was doing. I was a bit of bluff. And then it <laughs> sort of, then you know, what do I do to sort of hide those bad parts of my game? So it took a couple of years for all that to develop and mentally again, and to train harder than the next person. And then it all came together from there. In addition to your results in between the lines, you always had a reputation for being part of the lineage of great Australian sportsmen an epic tradition that goes through Laver and Hode and Rosewall and Emerson and on down the line. Were you cognizant of the responsibility of that lineage and actively wanting to continue in that tradition of not just great champions, but great sportsmen mm. at the same time? Mm. Well, first of all, it comes from my father. Um, he used to rip me off the court if I misbehaved. There was just no place for that type of behavior. And then it was to your family as well. So do not embarrass your family. Certainly on the tour, and you had guys like Nuke and Rochi around and 
they were more my sort of guys who were in my face a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And there was um, Bob Carmichael, one of my, my coaches at the time. You know, it was one of those things he would say, if you're going to spit, you go into the corner. If you've got the phlegm, you spit into a corner and then you rub it out or something like that. I don't want to see any of these revolting things. Yep, no worries, so you did that. Um, one of our great umpires and referees, a guy called Bill Gilmore, Australian guy, said, Pat, when you go up to shake hands, you take your hat off. You do not shake hands with your hat on. So take your hat off, so you do that. And you, and you listen to everyone that gave you advice along the way. And then you had... In 93, before I'd beaten Pete at Indianapolis, uh, Ken Rosewell and Rod Laver were there, and they got me on the court, and they were hitting balls with me. Mm. And this was like, this is unbelievable. Right. And they said, yeah, you're a little bit raw, mate, you know, but you know, you, you wait and see, you got a, you got something there. And it was sort of fun to talk to those guys. And and if they ever said you step out of line, you say, well, what did I do, and how do I, and how do I not do that again? It was really strong, you know, and. Um, Guys like then John Fitzgerald, who I had a lot to do with, the same sort of thing, you know, pull your head in. The flip side of that would have been when you were Davis Cup captain and you were then charged with trying to impart that ethic, that spirit of, of Australian mm-hmm. manhood and tennis and, and all of that to the next generation of guys. Did you find that experience rewarding, frustrating, both, or something from off the menu? Mm. It was sort of frustrating because I thought I'd make an impact. I was kidding myself. And, uh, and it's, it's just a generation, you know, and, and these kids want to do it their way and they're pretty set and firm on what the, how they want to go about it. I don't know. I, I, I thought it was going to be easy. Um, so I had no buy-in and I thought I was just going to go in there with all guns blazing and tell them what to do and how it's going to be and stop doing this and... And they will listen. <laughs> uh, so that was, it was actually really frustrating in the end. But I learned a lot for myself as well. And then, so going back a little bit, is I think what happens later is now you probably get a bit more buy-in. Not from a couple of the guys, but some of them, they'll come back uh-huh. and go, oh, yeah, yes, you know what, Paddy, I get it. I get you were trying to do. <laughs> but it's I, a bit late. Is becoming a champion more about the physical or more about the mental for you? Well, you can't have one without the other. Right. So you do need both of them. And how much and what percentage, I don't know. But obviously there's the physical side can be, let's say, it's talent as well as fitness. Um, well, you need both of it. But to an extent, when it comes to talent, a lot more people, some people are just more talented than others. Mm-hmm. And we can see that with you know, guys like Federer and then you who are naturally gifted with their hands. And then you see guys who are probably not quite as talented as Roger, but you know, some of the greatest we've ever seen, the greatest we've ever seen in Djokovic and Nadal. You know, that brute strength, mm-hmm. power, physical, mental toughness, you know, and it's like, wow, you know. So you can see the combination, you need it all. But if you look at the top players, Sampras included and Andre, they, they play the big pressure points really well. And, and that's what sort of stands them above everyone else as well, believing in their own ability and knowing that they're going to pull off the shot that they need to do. It happens, it doesn't just happen once or twice, it happens, you know, 15 times, 30 times for these guys consistently, and that's why they win, you know, 10, 20, 30 grand slams, whatever they're going to win. <laughs> they're just that good. So I think it goes sort of hand in hand to an extent. So you bring up the word pressure, which is such an interesting topic. 
someone said, well, the greatest, the Federers, the Nadals, the Djokovic's, well, they don't feel the pressure. And, I, I, and then I've heard mm. other people say, well, of course, that's not true. Every athlete feels pressure. Mm. They just know how to synthesize it mm. a little bit better. What, what's your observation about pressure? I think you sums up really well. That's how I do see it. That way is that they, they're able to either relieve the expectation of that pressure or they know how to synthesize it better and put it in its own little box. Mm. It's not that big a deal. But I can tell you that when I played Pete in the finals of Wimbledon and I had him and I choked, <laughs> um, that feeling is not a great feeling. And I don't know if Pete ever felt the way I felt, <laughs> you know, in terms of any of the matches he played, but I felt the pressure so much of the expectation I'm going to win Wimbledon. It was that close. I felt it. So I think they just have a really natural ability to be able to put in this little box and somehow deal with it. I heard one player describe it as, I need to separate the achievement mm. from the process of arriving yeah. at that achievement. But man, how do you do that? In 20 seconds. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, that I can't know. be easy because the minute you think about separating those thoughts, well, then you've, you've gone ahead and thought mm. about it, haven't mm. you? Mm. You have. <laughs> um, I think, you know, I, I, I like the theory of it. If you can do it, then hats off. <laughs> but I still think it's just, I still go back to the basics of, you know, like you looked at Pete and he went, Meh. you know, it just seemed to be like, and he's going to come up with a big serve or a big shot. It's like, bloody hell. You know, he was just so good at it. I mean, he was the greatest player of, of my time. Um, I just always found him so cool and collected. You know, I, I work with Paul Anacone and he coached Pete for a mm. long stretch and he said, something that Pete used to say to him when they were working together. And he goes, you know, Paul, I know my average game is going to beat most guys 90% of the time. And it blew my mind. Mm. Does that resonate with you? Well, it's one of those things, too. You can say it and think it, <laughs> and then you can actually be it. <laughs> and he was both. You know, but you can kid yourself that I'm, my game's going to be better. I mean, I could kid myself, but I know it's like deep down, I'm going, oh, probably not. But Pete could bloody back it up. Right. And that's why he was, you know, the greatest of, of, our, of my generation, of the 90s anyway. So, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a tricky one. We talk about pressure and expectations, and we're seeing it now with, um, you know, we're seeing a lot now with the players going on with external pressures of life and, Mental health? Uh, mental health, and I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not... It's, it's really hard for me to sit back and um, sort of watch it sometimes when I'm going, guys, this is a tennis match. It's not that big a deal. Mm. But is there other things in their life going on, which I don't know. We never know that. Yeah, you, you, you never know. But in our time, I don't, we didn't see it. I don't know, tennis was never... You had the pressure on the court. Yeah, that's what we get paid for. Mm -hmm. That's what people are seeing and experiencing. If you can't handle it, don't play it. You realize that you're saying something that's a little bit flying in the face of this evolving I know. thought process I know. of how athletes need to be I know. treated. I know. But I just got to be, I think you just got to simplify it. First of all, we're playing a game. It's not the end of the world. It's a bit of fun. Let's not kid ourselves. We're doing something important to save the world. <laughs> Second of all, we have a crack. Have a go. <laughs> Let's see how good you are. If you're not that good, no big deal. You know, you, you're going to find out how good you are, though. That's exciting. That's fun. There's no pressure. Expectation. You're getting paid millions of dollars to do something that's fun. Come on, guys. Let's just keep it really real. It is what it is. But if there's other external things going on with mental health, then that's mm -hmm. different. But when it comes to tennis and the pressure, 
that's it. It's always going to be there. Enjoy it. If you're not, don't play the sport. All right, so let me apply that mindset to a moment in your career. You've won the U.S. Open in 97. You come back in 98 to defend, which you ultimately did. Was the pressure greater as you were trying to win it for the first time, your first major, or was the pressure greater the next year when mm. people may have expected you to do mm. the same thing, which was a tougher oh, accomplishment? Yeah. The second one would have been because the first one I was flying under the radar. I was doing okay, but you know, I was sneaking through the draw and then I get into the quarterfinals and someone says to me in the press conference, I'd just beaten Andre in the fourth round. And they said, Agassi said, you can't win this. I said, well, there's eight guys left, I'm one of eight. I don't know, I reckon I'm one of eight chance of winning it. I don't know if I'm gonna win, but I've got a chance. And it sort of happened. And then um, 1998 came around, I'd just come off winning tournament after tournament in America through the swing. And I'm coming in there, I'm, now I'm a little bit flat, but I'm ultra confident. <laughs> it's a weird one. Mm. First few matches were going, I was really struggling mentally to get through them. And then after that, it just sort of all opened up. And I started playing great tennis. And then from there, I was not I was sort of, un, you know, I was winning, I beat Pete in the court, in the semis. Um, and sort of, I just felt really, really confident I was going to win. And then, you know, then you go around and you, you, the next few years, you, every tournament you go to, you're expected you know, to do well here, you're going to do well. <laughs> no, 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 not really. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just kept things pretty basic. I just hope to get through the first round, the first week, the first match. Let's see what happens. So when you look back on your career, do you cherish the two US Open titles more? Or do you lament the two mm. Wimbledon runner-up finishes more? It's probably lament the two Wimbledon no. losses. I know. It's weird, isn't it? It's probably the ones you stick out more because you you um, see the big picture of winning Wimbledon, winning maybe three or four Grand Slams. I mean, so cool. You know, like, that. I mean, so much fun. Winning two is pretty cool. Great. Yeah, really good. Um, <laughs> like, like, I know, but isn't it interesting? You know, it's, it's those losses... They, they sort of stick with you more. They, they sort of hurt. Mm. Um, and I'm sure there's a great saying about it. I don't know what it is. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, you know, you, you won them and it's great. Um, and you know what? If I won four majors, it probably would have been like, yeah, that's pretty cool. But I wouldn't have ever felt the pain of losing, which, anyway, you don't necessarily need to have. It's, uh, the, the sweet's not as sweet without the bitter or something like that? Probably. I don't, yeah. Okay. Mm. Was... Deciding when to stop, uh, difficult or obvious for you? Pretty obvious. Um, for me, it was like I couldn't wait. Really? I was excited and never looked back. The first year of retirement was difficult. How I so? Remember, well, Wimbledon came around, Davis Cup came <laughs> around, the US Open came around, and I'm watching them going. The Aussie Open was straight after I retired. Right. You know, like I'd, I'd finished in November or something like that, December, and then the Aussie Open, I was in no... And no desire to play tennis then. But then Wimbledon and then Davis Cup and then US Open. It's like, man, they were great events. When, you know, I want to be there and play in them. And they started hurting for that first year. Then after they got better and better uh, and easier and easier. But you also understand that the work you require, the, the work required to be competitive in the majors and Davis Cup is a lot. <laughs> I was hurting. No, and, and mentally I would, I'd probably tapped out a bit too. It was like, I think I'm done. And then physically my body was a bit busted and it sort of played 
together though. I think mentally I'd tapped out more than my body had. Mm. And I was ready to finish. So for me, the decision was pretty easy. We had a child straight away mm -hmm. and it was like, no, this is my life now and it's done. And so what was the biggest adjustment when you stepped away? The biggest adjustment is, is probably selfishness. Huh. Because it's required as it's an athlete. It's all about you. You can tell anyone around you, I'm sorry, it's all about me. And I need to be focused. I need this, you know, you're in a bad mood, are you? I don't care. <laughs> it's about me today, okay? And then all of a sudden you go into this a little family, a little child, my wife says, you know, get up and do the dishes, or something, whatever it might be. You know, mm -hmm. you go, oh, geez, I've got to do it. Yeah, you're right. I've got nothing to fall back on here. <laughs> So, yeah, it's not about you anymore, Tiger. No. And that is a big transition for a lot of athletes. Yeah. Any sport that they do, whether you're playing NFL, whether you're playing tennis or golf, it's not about you more anymore, buddy. So get your head around it. It's now family or it's now someone else or something else. Can you believe that it's been 17 years since you were enshrinement in 2006. What a glorious class that was with Gabrielle Sabatini going in. What are your memories, just uh, top line of, of that weekend and that experience? I think the first thing you said was the time that's gone. It's passed. Someone <laughs> said, when's the last time you're here? And I said 2006. And I went, no, no, no. It must have been sooner than that. And time is getting away so quickly. So first of all, that's one thing that comes to mind. Obviously, getting inducted is very, very special. For Australians, it means a lot. Yeah, and it's talked about being the International Hall of Fame. That's the one you want to get into. And, and then being inducted was really special. And then doing it with Gabriella, who I'd never met before. Really? Never. And she was so lovely. And it was just such a really beautiful three or four days of, of everything that went around it and seeing the town, seeing the, the beautiful houses and then just being inducted and, and going through the process of it all with such a great great girl like Gabriella was, was a lot of fun. Were you able to step back and breathe it all in or were you so caught up in the speeches and the family and the, that, that it, it mm. became overwhelming? I mean, I, I certainly remember the experience, but in terms of it's probably more of a blur than you know, <laughs> taking a deep breath and enjoying the moment. You know, the, the speech and everything and wondering whether or not I've got it right. And, um, <laughs> I think, but life's a little bit like that sometimes. I think it's probably more to do with your nature. And my nature a little bit sometimes is, is, is that's part of it and I move on to the next bit and I don't stop and smell the roses enough. So would you say you're not nostalgic as a result of that outlook? I would say so, I am. It's interesting when you talk about tennis in my career because it talks about it only when we talk about it right now yeah. in these type of interviews. And someone will say, explain to me what happened. I go, hang on, just give me a second. <laughs> 20 years ago, and it's a lot, you know, that's a life ago, right. you know, in a way, because I've, I look at it, I put in sort of chapters of my life, you know, my childhood, then my tennis career, and now the family life. And that's where I'm sort of, you know, coming towards the end of my family life in a way. I mean, our children are getting older and they're moving out, they're, they're not at home anymore. And, and it's sort of another chapter that keep happening. And when you reflect on it, you re then you, you can you have taken mental notes over time and you, you can remember them. Um, but there's a lot that's um, been lost as well. So I know there are, there are different chapters in your life, but I wonder when you come around here and you see these gorgeous grass courts at the mm -hmm. Hall of Fame, do the serve and volley instincts 
bubble up within you when you and you say, wait a minute, I, I remember what I could do on those. Yes, but I also understand it's a very different game. It's, it's just changed and, and I'm 50 now and I know I can't serve and volley anymore. <laughs> and I had a fun hit today with some of the guys and it was really enjoyable and being on the grass and the grass is incredible right now. I, I must admit what they've done to the courts. I know they've spent a lot of money on redoing them. They've done a terrific job. Back when we played was, you know, the old traditional grass mm -hmm. courts, how they used to play, whereas the ball would drop and you wouldn't be able to pick it up off the ground, you know, sort of thing. You <laughs> don't let the ball hit the court. And that was old, old school, and Newport kept those old school courts. And Wimbledon and Queen's Club and those are just a big, pure, hard, mm -hmm. fast grass courts where they used to be. Um, and they still are hard and firm. And they were sort of, I always preferred to play on a sort of a, a, a softer grass court. Oh, yeah. But being out here, I must admit, it was, it was really nice to be back on there and use the courts. So let me close with this then. Um, what would be your advice to a young athlete who hadn't yet started a pro career but who aspired to one to achieve not just success on the court mm. but to achieve wholeness as a, as a mm. person along the way? Mm. Well, I, I think it's a little bit simple, but I'm, I might be wrong. And I always say, if you're going to have a go, go at it hard and let's see how good you can be and be the best you can be. Leave nothing behind because achievement and success is not the results. It's what you get out of yourself and how good you can be. So if you get to 50 in the world and you bust your guts to get there and you do everything you can, I think that's success. And then that makes you more whole as a person because you walk away from the game not saying woulda, shoulda, couldas. It is, I gave it everything. I'm proud of myself. I think it all plays in together. I think those people that don't do everything and give themselves the best opportunity can sometimes have that remorse. So that's probably me being very simple with it. Pat, thanks for the chat. No what a charming human being. And that line he gave us about halfway through, quote, we're playing a game. It's not the end of the world. It's a bit of fun. Let's not kid ourselves that we're doing something important to save the world. Well, that's just priceless. I love tennis, and I suspect you do too, but isn't it wonderful to hear someone who's given so much of their life to the sport able to put it into its rightful context? The exemplary Patrick Rafter. If you've enjoyed this podcast, the greatest thing you can do now is tell your friends about it. Get them to download it and enjoy it too. And there's more to come. Next time, we'll be talking to another admirable individual who has as many things to teach us about life as about tennis the amazing wheelchair champion, Esther Vergeer. The Tennis Worthy Podcast is brought to you by the International Tennis Hall of Fame in association with the Tennis Radio Network. I'm Brett Haber. Thanks so much for listening to the Tennis Worthy Podcast. We look forward to your company next time.